Hi, iGymers. I'm Melody, an undergrad at MIT studying biological engineering. I was an after iGym ambassador in 2020 when we first began the iGymers of the World podcast. I'm really excited to be hosting another two episodes of the iGymers of the World podcast over the next two weeks. I've really always been really interested in Symbio since coming to MIT because my high school team was actually an all-girls high school team from California that participated in 2016 and that got me into Symbio um, whereas beforehand I had like imagined myself to be like completely non-scientist for a variety of reasons and then coming to MIT I like definitely had sparked a lot of interest to me to think about the intersections of environmental health and human health, especially I think when we're thinking about engineering biology, that becomes even more apparent to me. And so I got really interested in planetary health as well. And so that's like these two worlds that I'm like interested in exploring more and balancing. And like, it's always been of interest to me to think about like how often like as an artist myself, like how often these kind of like communities are separated, whether that's like the idea of communities and, and people and science being like separate spheres, even though they're also interacting. And so that's always been of interest to me. Not really sure what it will take me, but I'm really excited to meet you. It's wonderful to meet you too, Melody. I'm really excited to be in conversation with you. And, um, you know, your story reminds me why I am still at a university working with students because um, it's really exciting to see the different frames and the different intersections of topics that students are bringing to biological engineering or any field of study and how much things that were considered to be separate, you know, this idea of, of science sort of being separate from society in some ways is just not the premise that you and others are bringing in. The idea that like, of course, these need to be coupled they're intricately linked. Science is part of society. I think there's a really amazing opportunity as, as we're training and thinking in new ways with the next generation of scientists, engineers, and citizens. So, and just to, to step back on who I am. So um, my name is Megan Palmer. I am currently the executive director of biopolicy and leadership initiatives at Stanford University. I'm also an adjunct professor in the Department of Bioengineering at Stanford, and I'm an affiliate uh, researcher of the Center for International Security and Cooperation, part of the Friedman's Bogley Institute for International Studies, Stanford. That's a, a lot of different affiliations, but mostly what it means is I, um, I am a, a bioengineer by training, but most of my, my work in research and in education and in public policy engagement is really at this intersection of many different fields. Now, a big part of my work over now more than a decade, you could say about 15, 15 16 years, has been really focused on working with the iGEM community. So I uh, did my PhD in bioengineering at MIT around the time that synthetic biology was really getting started. So I, I started at MIT in, in 2004. So right around when, when iGEM was, was starting and when Synthetic biology and in the way we talk about it today was being imagined or reimagined, depending on how you think about it. So my first 
experience with iGEM was actually as iGEM's photographer or one of iGEM photo one of iGEM's photographers. <laughs> Since late in the 2000s, I have been intimately involved with the with the human practices uh, program at, at iGEM and then um, recent years was the director of that program. And now I retired from that, that role and serve as a, a special advisor to, to iGEM. How did you all start like thinking about human practices for iGEM in the 2000s and like where was like since Symbio at? I think it's hard for me as someone who's been through iGEM, but then also like more in the more recent like decade or so kind of engaged with it. What was it like in the kind of very beginning when Symbio was almost just beginning to be imagined? I feel excited by many of the ideas at um, at the heart of, of iGEM in particular, even before I knew about iGEM and even before iGEM existed. And that's in part because when I was in high school, I actually participated in uh, first robotics competition. So we had a, we had a high school team, first time high school team um, that got together and got to build a, a robot at that time um, out of parts. But that, that robot was uh, had to play hockey. I'm Canadian. So of course the robot had to play hockey uh, against other robots and sort of compete to win. So the, this idea of team-based um, engineering competitions was familiar to me. So when I eventually encountered iGEM, that, that seemed exciting. Um, but my, my interest in these topics around, you know, bioengineering and, and society, those I'd say really began to be cultivated when I was in undergraduate. I was an undergraduate actually in a program called engineering chemistry that was between chemistry and engineering science. And um, I was really interested in biology and the life sciences, but there were no bioengineering degrees at that time. <laughs> and so I, um, I ended up being in, in this program and then taking a few classes in, in the life sciences. But I got my first real research experience working in bioengineering. And I think the summer after my, my third year in, in undergrad, and a lot of my colleagues were going to be working in uh, as engineers, working in sort of chemical plants and in oil and gas up in Canada. And I just wasn't interested in those topics. I was really interested in biology. And one of my professors had a link with somebody in my hometown of Calgary, Alberta. And there was a research lab that was beginning to work on stem cells using some of the technologies they, they used to be able to cultivate stem cells and use them for research. And so I had a summer research experience in, in that lab. And to tell you the truth, I just, part of it was getting to see cells grow and differentiate in a dish in the lab. I just thought it was so beautiful and, and powerful. And uh, I was really interested in, in using some of my engineering skill set to sort of understand what was going on and how those transformations occurred. And then when I came back to undergrad, I was in my last year, I was very fortunate to have another professor who did a seminar course on, um, on topics in the life sciences and engineering. And a lot of that class was around topic in, you know, what role this would play in society, topics around ethics. Um, and I got to do my own little project um, at the time on stem cell policies, um, how that should apply to the types of research that we should do. So skip forward a little bit. I'm applying to grad schools. <laughs> And I applied to grad school at MIT in part because I, you know, want to do bioengineering and had a bioengineering program. And I remember going out um, and being on a uh, my flight out to 
MIT for the grad school interviews. And I'd you know, written this application letter. I want to work on bioengineering and maybe on stem cell policies. And it was a, it was a pretty interesting time too, because this was around the 2003, 2004 uh, elections and stem cells and stem cell policies were on the, they were literally on the ballot um, depending on who was elected president, it might shape the research that was done. So I know that this is happening at that time. I'm on a plane over to MIT and I open up the Scientific American magazine that my grandma <laughs> got for me. And I read an article about synthetic biology. This was in, it must've been early 2004. And so that was my first sort of interest. I was like, look at this field of synthetic biology. I'm interested in bioengineering, the sort of bioengineering and public policy is in the public consciousness. And I got to MIT and I met all these amazing people. I thought I have to go here. And soon after I landed, I was working with a group at MIT called the Technology and Culture Forum, in part out of interest in these topics and, you know, the intersection of public policy and, and bioengineering. And one of the first groups uh, that we worked with to hold some, some seminars, so I helped organize these student and faculty seminars, um, was with a, uh, a professor named Drew Endy, who's one of the co-founders of iGEM. <laughs> and we held a set of programs on, um, called, I think we called it Synth Synthetic Society. <laughs> and uh, so that's how I started, you know, in 2003, 2004, uh, getting interested in, in these topics. You know, we, at that time then, I became, you know, involved through some of my classmates who were now the founders of, of Ginkgo and others. <laughs> you know, I was, was like, what is this thing called iGEM? And, and I ended up becoming, you know, involved just not on a team at that time, but as a, again, as a, as a photographer and seeing the excitement of, of this work. So flash forward a few years, I don't work on stem cells. <laughs> I end up working in immunology and systems biology and in my PhD, in part because that was shaped by the stem cell um, policies at the time. And being part of these conversations about bioengineering and society, and also part of conversations um, with some of the, the synthetic biology community. At the end of my PhD, I was like, well, I'm really interested in the science. I love the science. I love the engineering. But I'm also just as interested in many of these conversations about science and society. You know, how do I, how do I possibly, you know, work in this, at this intersection? And I was just really fortunate at that time that um, I had reconnected with again, this professor named Drew Wendy, who'd since, who'd then moved out to Stanford. And I was on my last postdoc interview with another professor at Stanford. And I, I got connected with, with Drew again. And I said, you know, I'm really interested in bioengineering and I, maybe I'd want to go back to be working on stem cells, but I'm also really interested in shaping, you know, how do we confront these topics around not what can we do with bioengineering, but what should we do? You know, how do we shape the the policies, how do we engineer the conversations on what type of bioengineering, you know, we should, we should pursue. And Drew offered me a, a really amazing opportunity to basically be the, the deputy director of an integrated 
policy component of a major multi-university center in synthetic biology um, called Synberg, the Synthetic Biology Engineering Research Center. And so right after my PhD, so iGEM was also supported in part through this multi-university um, and a, a National Science Foundation Center. At that time, it was a it was just such an amazing challenge of, of thinking through that had actually been since those early um, years on the sort of synthetic society conversations, there'd been uh, this major center that had been developed and integrated within that center was um, a research program that was called Human Practices. And so it was actually two anthropologists, uh, Paul Rabinow and, and Gaiman Bennett, who were uh, at University of California, Berkeley at that time, who um, had worked with uh, the scientists and engineers that had conceived of this field called synthetic biology. And we said, you know, really from the very start, we need to think about how does, how does synthetic biology contribute to flourishing? How does it contribute to what we think about is security? How do we actually think about living good lives through, through bioengineering? I won't be able to do justice to their conception, but the major factor of this was you know, this idea of a, a partnership between the life sciences, humanities, and the social sciences, as well as other disciplines, and thinking that like as we learn to engineer, engineer living matter, there's much more at stake. <laughs> So um, I came in five years into this experiment and was, um, um, was essentially a, a deputy in being able to craft these joint research, uh, educational and policy engagement calls, working with folks in not only the biosciences and, and engineering, but also with political science, with law, with anthropology, with science and technology studies, with, um, you know, again, all these other fields to, to figure out what that looked like. One of the most important sites for that work was the iGEM competition, you know, because as we've learned, if we've learned anything, you know, from iGEM is the, the power of putting essentially young people all over the world in charge of coming up with the best ideas. But often it's not all of us who are senior professors that are coming up with some of these ideas, but there's something very powerful to, you know, providing the tools and the space for many people to dream and work together. So one of the biggest experiments through through this work, well, you know, um, and this is again, the, the conception of Paul Rabinow and Game of Beta at that time. It's like, what if we, what if we had part of the the iGEM competition that wasn't just a technology competition like you know the what we'd conceived of before but what if we actually recognized a different type of work that needs to be situated in and coupled with with designing you know organisms from parts and so that actually became the first the first iteration of of human practices although it built on this foundation from the very start of iGEM asking the question, is what we're doing okay? You know, and providing a, a platform for also, you know, access and enabling many groups. And, and so that became human practices. And then you know, I think that was in 2008, I believe was, or 2009 was the first time the human practices program um, was, was developed. And then in the, you know, 13 years since that program has gone through like multiple iterations and conceptions, it now forms an integrated part of the incentive structure in the community, in, um, in the types of, of people who are part of teams 
working in iGEM. And we're actually in the process right now of trying to write up the history of all of the different communities and visions of what um, you know what responsible bioengineering looked like and and how do we empower that work and how do we value that work and how do we evaluate that work <laughs> through the competition so I'm happy to talk about any of that long history <laughs> but for me I think that iGEM has been this, this amazing example and testbed of, of building a culture that and a community that really values not just, you know, gee whiz technology, but rather asking those, those fundamental questions of like, how does your work affect the world and how, to, how should the world affect your work? And that's not just a one-time conversation. It's a, it's a conversation that continues over and over. And we need to figure out, you know, how do we, how do we actually do that in, in practice? Yeah, I guess to follow up to that last kind of comment, I think like especially as iGEM like starts to think about how to extend projects beyond their kind of like one year life cycle or time, how have like you also thought about like human practices kind of extending beyond just um, human practices in the framework of your project, but also continuing the conversations that you might have with the people or communities that you connect with through human practices. Like how has that kind of shaped your thinking in like, kind of being in this space for so long now, connecting with all these people from all sorts of disciplines? It's really interesting. So and there's a long, much longer history of thinking about, you know, what our responsibilities are um, as, you know, as, as people and citizens of the world, but as scientists and as engineers in particular. The synthetic biology is sort of situated at this interesting place where it it, it brings a there's a hist long history of of bioethics um, that's coming in, but also a longer history of of engineering ethics, and of course, of you know even broader history of, of sort of ethical thinking as a whole. And so we can look to some of those different frameworks to also see the way that they, they're already affecting work in, in a lot of disciplines in, in the medical enterprise, for instance, um, but also in the way other fields of science and engineering have professionalized their, their roles and responsibilities. And so, you know, you think of any, uh, company too, right, is is now needing to think about, there's a public conversation, it's not just, you know, shareholders, but like there's stakeholders and broader social responsibilities that our com companies, you know, have. And there's part of those conversations that happen at a, at a level of like asking, like, what's the change you're trying to make in the world? But like, what's your business model? And what's your, you know, your thing that you're trying to do as a company or as a nonprofit, or even as an individual researcher? But then it's the way that those get codified and and practiced, you know. So it might mean that you know you are are working on something at a high level that is for public benefit and not just for profit, right? <laughs> and but figuring out what public benefit is is sometimes really really hard, <laughs> and you have to have multiple people that come together to say, okay, let's say we're trying to replace something that has a high carbon intensity or high carbon footprint with something that has a lower carbon footprint, right? And so figuring out how to pursue that, value it, figure out if it's a business model, like that, that would be part of the conversations there. Um, a lot of the things that have um, often been promoted have been thinking about like, how do you not do harm, right? At, the, at a base level, do you not do harm through your, your projects? And you know, sometimes those harms are also really hard to figure out, right? <laughs> like there's really ones that are easy to consider that are like, let's not put a product out there that is likely to make somebody sick, <laughs> right? And, and that means you, 
often you're not doing it alone, you're doing it with others, you're working with, you know, oversight and regulatory agencies, figuring out the types of tests you need, the types of standards. But then sometimes there are different types of harms that are more difficult to figure out, right, which is like the harm from, you know, exacerbating inequities between different groups, right. And so the way that you figure that out, and then um, figure out what your policies are that, you know, as a as a company or as an individual, like that's a that's a sort of process where you're kind of working in this in this gray zone, <laughs> where you can reach out to some people, being like, "What's the precedent for the way I would even think about this potential harm or this potential benefit?" And then, how do I develop a, a standard? And that could be a standard in like the type of technology you produce. It can be a standard in who's producing the technology. It can be a standard in and a policy around who you alert and work with that will have a shared responsibility in your work. And sometimes those, those standards aren't standards yet, right? They're just like, they kind of derive often from common sense coupled with building in some checks and balances <laughs> on, your, on your work. And, and, the, and that, at, you know, at the end of the day, what this is really about is thinking about like science and engineering is a, it's a social practice, right? it affects society. And then when you're working with something like engineering living matter, where that stuff is literally the stuff that we're made of and that the living world that we're all a part of is made out of, that we have extra responsibilities to be proactively thinking about these things <laughs> and working as a community to figure out what are some shared standards and, uh, and then evolving those over time, right? Because like, as bioengineers, we know how to deal some with evolution, right? <laughs> so we should be able to, to figure out how to update, evolve, and and learn our and you know and learn in our practices over time. So something that I've been like kind of thinking about a lot is this kind of idea that like when you like even though science and engineering is a social practice, I think when we think of like science and engineering, it's like based upon this idea that we can control things in our experiments, that we can like set particular variables and then determine a cause and an effect. And then you can en engineer the like particular inputs so that you know for sure, like somewhat that the inputs that you put in result in the output intended outputs. But when you think about it in like the social context and especially in like human practices and like when you put that into the actual world where our tests aren't controlled experiments and there's people and more things involved that make things even more difficult, like that like starts to like all those things in, in science and engineering start to fall apart. And like, I'm curious, like, how do you really balance the two? And also, how do you talk to scientists who often are in the mindset of like, oh, we can control for these things, or we can look at the data and find the the, re the reasons why when there's like all these other variables that kind of come into play when you're thinking about actual society and the world? I mean, this is like the problem of being a person and a human in the world, right? Where we always are operating under imperfect information and with uncertainty, right? but you still have to go about living your life and trying to do the best you can do. Um, and I feel like I'm still, you know, even myself trying to learn how do we make sort of principled decisions and, and as best informed decisions as we can without leading to paralysis, right? Because that's the other version of this is you can get so overwhelmed, you sort of don't do anything. And there's a risk also in not doing anything. You know, what I feel like is in practice, you can kind of distill these into some pretty simple principles. It's sort of like, think a little before you act, 
like developed a community of people who can, you know, challenge and critique you, but also support you. Uh, that's a pretty simple thing, but it's actually, you know, often we, we don't like critique, right? but that's something, you know, important that, that we need to have in recognizing everybody has blinders, right? We all get, can get locked into our, our patterns of thinking and thought. And actually that's what scientists, you know, and engineers are, are, are really good at, like we're good at coming up with tests and hypotheses and assumptions or like trying to build the thing and debug it, sort of like the counterpart, right? Build it or like study it and build it. And, and that, that skill is, I think, a really important, and it's more of a skill. It's a, it's a mindset of sort of welcoming critical feedback. But also there's an important recognition that like, you know, the inclinations of scientists and engineers sometimes are not always the best things and not a complete fit. I've, I've really enjoyed over a long period of time having really close collaborations with other disciplines that bring other types of, of normative lenses to their work. Um, so I have a, you know, over decade long collaboration with Sam Evans, who is a science and technology studies scholar, and who is also really instrumental in a lot of the human practices work uh, with another uh, person who's, who's really involved was Todd Kukin. Kukin, Todd is a environmental scientist and, and brings a lot of that, that work. It's a lot of bioengineers sometimes aren't coming from that ecology and environmental background. And Todd does a lot of uh, public policy work. And so I think, you know, in practice, if I think about a lot of the decisions I'm trying to make, you know, people like that and, and others in anthropology, as I said, and in also in practicing professions, they're often people that in just in practice, I call, right? And I say, I'm trying to do this thing. These are my assumptions. What can you help me out with? <laughs> or is there somebody who's thought a lot more about this than, than I have who can help me make a good decision? And so there's ways to you know, essentially have informed decision-making and to develop a practice of, of advising and, 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 and checking how you're, how you're working within a system. But then also at the end of the day, you, you act. And then part of the responsibility is knowing that like you will be responsible and you'll have some level of accountability where if you do something wrong, you also have a responsibility to then try and clean it up. <laughs> So you probably make some mistakes and you just try to make them in a way so that you can recover <laughs> or you can make the less, you know, make a different mistake next time instead of making the same one. To like concretely talk about human practices for like people who might not be in the iGEM community, like what is like your favorite or like maybe not necessarily have to be your favorite, but the most recent example that you've been thinking about when thinking about human practices, like what that really looks like in, in practice. There's a lot of old examples and a lot of new examples. You know, I'm, I often think back to older examples because they, um, they really shaped a lot of the, the thinking. So let me step back for a second. So, you know, human practices, we always described it as thinking about how the, you know, your, your work affects the world and, and the world affects your work. And increasingly now we're encapsulating it in these notions of sort of like responsibility and respect and it's become much broader, but, but what it actually meant in practice is trying to say that there's many different ways to go about this process of figuring out if your project's okay and engaging with a variety of communities. So I've been really inspired by a lot of teams that as they're trying to think about, you know, what, what product they're going to develop, 
they go out and actually talk to the people who might use that product or might use that approach. So whether it's like working with farmers around an agricultural product, as well as the regulators of that product, or it's um, if you're working on a diagnostic, going out and seeing like, who are the people who would be using this diagnostic in the field? Or they are really like doing deep, it doesn't need to just be expert consultations or consultations with people who are eventually going to use your work. Um, sometimes it can be relying on a lot of the, the like reports that are written that are synthesizing many different you know, insights, insights from that work and doing some desk research. So that's one way to just like get an idea on like, don't wait to find out who's going to use your, your eventual innovation until the end, do that first. <laughs> some of the work has also, instead of integrating um, and doing early field research has said, well, you know, we are developing a technology that we realize is, is in some gap in current oversight or policies around how to keep this technology safe. And this has happened in iGEM a lot, right, where a lot of the, the policies are built on our, you know, a whole organism of, you know, of a certain species. And when you're recombining those, it's not clear where those things fall. And so the idea is iGEM teams aren't just, you know, trying to find the gaps and, and go through them, but rather like identify a gap and then work with the people who would need to figure out the policies to advance that technology safely. So that like proactive risk engagement, we've seen that at many levels at the levels of like, oh, what, what should my university's policies be around handling these organisms in a, in a safe way? Or even what, what types of research agendas to support? Like what benefits do we think most useful bits of this technology in terms of funding policies? Sometimes it's at the level of countries where it's either developing, an, again, an oversight policy or like a funding priorities for um, and a strategy for, for the, the country or the region. Um, some of the most inspiring uses for me have been for iGEM students, like going to the United Nations and, um, and presenting their approaches to a lot of the same types of, of challenges that all these you know, diplomats or are dealing with at a really high abstract level and giving examples of the way that they are put into practice in, in iGEM projects and what iGEM projects collectively have, re have revealed in terms of how policies that might be developed will, will affect those projects. There's also been a lot of really interesting work in developing new tools and frameworks. So, you know, these questions like, how do we evaluate whether or not our project is sustainable? So doing life cycle assessments in the development of a, of a project, or there's been really interesting work early on in, in developing and questioning, like what is the ownership and property rights frameworks that should be coupled to these inventions and looking at a project level, but also looking across the field. And then I just want to mention last, I think that one of the things I love is many of these questions are really hard to confront and they're really hard to get, you know, get your head wrapped around and and, and consider the significance of it. And so what I've loved about iGEM projects is the idea that it's, there's also these really creative modalities to approach the projects. So sometimes it's like, there was an early project that um, actually did a lot of developing storybooks and, and narratives and around how do these you know, new innovations fit into, into existing cultures and traditions, those that are really at a more, you know, they're at a, at a conceptual level, and they're really shaping stories, have been really powerful. And then they seek, I think, I shouldn't say the secret ingredient, but the thing that 
you know, we've more and more tried to um, tried to reward is a couple things. One is evidence that you're not just professing these things to others. You're not saying you should think about these things, but evidence that you've thought about those those things and you've put it into practice through maybe altering the goal of your project or altering um, the specific details, like the tests you do to see if it's sustainable or safe, or even changing the way your team organizes and collaborates and maybe the partnerships you do. So not at a not in an organism design, but an organizational design. And then the other bit we look at is basically, does this set a good example for others? And does it empower others? So if if the team, a lot of the teams that are celebrated, we know that the next year's teams is going to look at that team and say like, they won, possibly, <laughs> that's a good idea. So, um, so, you know, sometimes it comes down to just a feeling like this, this thing that these, you know, this team is doing is, is so inspiring. And we want to not see one team do it. We want to see hundreds of teams do it. And, and often that just comes in seeing like the care and consideration that, that iGen teams take and in choosing what to spend their life energy on, right. As, as individuals. So hopefully that's slightly more tangible. Uh, well, abstract enough that I don't choose my favorites because I have too many favorites. <laughs> I definitely think that helps a lot with like kind of framing like what that looks like a little bit more and like kind of the diversity that even comes within human practices and, and thinking in that in that mindset. I guess like per, like a personal question for me has always been like, how did you know? Because like you, you said you were like debating between like doing this hardcore almost stem cell engineering research and kind of thinking about how that translates to policy and, and being able to still pursue that. Did you ever feel like you ended up having to choose one or the other? Did you ever feel like one was more even riskier than the other, more necessary than another? And did you ever like worry about like how other people in in the community, um, in the communities that you've been a part of would, would think of you based off the work that you ended up choosing to do? Yeah, it's a good set of questions. I, I think I was, I think I've always personally been attracted to sort of messy, but malleable spaces that matter. Like, so, so I've, I've always, I was attracted to a lot of the, the problems in bioengineering because they were so entwined with these really much more fundamental question about you know the stuff we're we're made of and how we how we interact with the living world and so for me it's always been that those questions were never really decoupled they were interesting because they were coupled and you know the stem cell example is one where from the very start um the research the policies were were going to be impacting the types of research that were done so the the example i gave before from um sort of 2004 there, depending on you know, what country I went to go do my PhD in and the elections in those countries, it would actually shape what types of funding could support the research and what sort of lines were put in, in what types of research were acceptable or not. So it was always clear to me that these questions weren't, you know, weren't couldn't be addressed after the fact. They were already shaping the types of knowledge, the types of, of science and engineering we, that we were doing. And so it is sort of difficult to do both, but I think that's kind of the point as well. <laughs> it, it is, um, it, it kind of should be difficult, but people do specialize in different areas. And I think the, the idea is you can specialize an area, but have a little, you know, have some visibility 
and maybe just have other partners and a community that's working on different things, right? So you can have a scientist and you can be a scientist and engineer, but like try to make sure that not all of your friends and colleagues are all scientists and engineers, or you can be a social scientist, right? You're working on social problems, but like if you're working in this space, make sure you have some friends that are scientists and engineers. It was a, it's going to make the world a lot better. I am still trying to do both science and engineering and a lot of this, you know, work on the policy engagement and public engagement. I, I think I've now found a, a place where I'm good to do both in some ways. So one of my um, one of my big research projects is actually using iGEM as a test bed to understand the science of science and engineering the science of science and innovation policy. So rather than study organisms, I study organizations, but I'm using a lot of the same tools when it comes to analyzing systems and networks and designing you know, systems and networks and even designing organisms, but now designing organizations where I can apply some of the same thinking, but to learning about not how we engineer biology, but how we engineer biology at, at the social scale, at the level of, of the way we organize ourselves. There's a great bit that my colleague Drew Endy and one of his postdocs is developing, it says the way we organize ourselves is uh, reflects the way we organize ourselves, right? That this, this is engineering from molecular to social scales. You know, and I've also, I would say, I, I have never been really worried about, you know, the way that other people might perceive this. I always listen. I'm trying to listen to what other people say. And they've definitely been lots of course corrections along the way. And I've definitely made some mistakes. But I think I'm always interested in those like strange intersections and sort of how to span different boundaries. It's definitely diff more difficult. It's a less linear path. <laughs> you know, I couldn't have anticipated what I'm doing now, I think a decade ago. But I, I'll say it's always been fun. It's not always been easy, but it's certainly always been fun and, and meaningful. Yeah, I think it's very interesting to think about. There's like often the linear path that seems more straightforward, um, maybe less risky, maybe the one that's kind of already charted. And then there's the one that seems really exciting, that's like slightly risky that you're not sure about and doesn't really seem very defined in terms of where to go. And then there's like also somewhere in between and like depending on the opportunities that come. Yeah, it's like interesting to think about, I guess. It's curious yeah. your take. I think yeah. a lot of it, you know, I usually, my decisions often come down to, you know, is it exciting? <laughs> do I feel like based on what I know, does it, does it matter? You know, do I get to learn? And do I get to learn from great people who inspire me? And I have great mentors. I've, I've been really fortunate to have really amazing mentors. And I was making a hard career decision at some point recently. And, you know, the scientist and engineer in me was like factoring in all of these different considerations and like really trying to be really systematic about it. And then I had um, one of my old colleagues just say, you know, Megan, does it make your heart sing? And, um, and I think that that's important too, you know? We, you know, we only have like, you know, this one sweet life and we better do something that matters and it makes our heart sing. That's so wonderful. I guess in think terms of uh, like the last question, I guess, to wrap up, do you, like, what are the kind of like, almost like pressing challenges that you think like face, I mean, besides the pandemic currently, but um, kind, of, kind of face our world currently, um, whether that's um, climate change, thinking about equity and accessibility, thinking about health security, but then also collaboration and even like keeping open communication 
keeping that kind of trust between communities possible, especially globally. Um, how how do you think, I mean, there's a human practices component to that, but it's like also a human practice interfacing with all these kind of sectors. How, how do you imagine that going and where do you see yourself in an iGEM in it? Oh, it's such a big question. I think this is a really important moment in time. I guess we always think it's an important moment in time, but I I feel like right now we are on the cusp of really being able to interact with the living world in new and powerful ways. And that will have really wide reaching implications, including, you know, potentially in a lot of these global challenges. Many of us were inspired by biology as a technology that already works and has billions of years of of (laughs) progress that we can learn from in developing sustainable solutions that have taken over the world. (laughs) And, um, and I think the the real, you know, fundamental question there is like, how do we partner with nature? How do we exist with this biosphere? And then what does that really mean about our relationship as, as, as humans with the rest of the earth? And and that question of like our relationship between humans, and the rest of the earth, you know, relates to these issues of, of climate change and, and, and biodiversity writ large. But they're also like, how do we shape our, our environment to coexist in a way that, that is sustainable? So that includes things like, you know, pandemic response and, and prevention. You know, one of the most important things that has enabled biotechnology to flourish is, is that we don't use biology as a weapon, right? It's like, generally accepted that that wasn't always the case right and and that is that's so important to secure but also we need that that foundation in order to also pursue the power of biotechnology for peaceful purposes um and and so i think there's no end to the the number of things that we can work on um right clearly climate change pandemic prevention poverty you know there's no end to the number of challenges i think it's the question is how how we we meet this moment so that we're not just delivering on those solutions sort of efficiently but we're delivering on them well so that everyone can benefit so that all people and the planet and the planet can benefit and then you know when it comes to how human practices and iGEM fits in I, I spent a lot of time thinking about what the future of of human practices is I I've argued at some stages it become just seamless, that we don't have to call it out as a separate thing, that it is part of the practice of being a human in working in this field. Um, and so it's not separate, but but really consistent. And I think the reason I've also been involved in iGEM for so long and, and also continue to learn from iGEM is I think it is this ongoing, collective, really global experiment in how we how we can work together right, at, at a really local level, but also combined together at this global level. And that the idea that, you know, we iterate, again, not just on our projects, not just on our ideas, but in our communities, in our approach. And I have a lot of, of hope and inspiration that comes from that idea that we, we can find new ways to recognize and, and learn from the diversity of approaches and communities but also come together to, to reflect on some really common global global challenges. So I'm just grateful to you. I'm grateful to the entire like iGEM community and the iGEM um, alumni community and after iGEM and all the supporters. Um, it it just I keep coming back because I'm I'm just so inspired by by the potential and the promise. 